Hey everyone, this is Ann Greeny, and welcome to Capital Connections. In this podcast, we will talk to successful investors and entrepreneurs about the state of their industry and how their network influenced their success. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to key decision makers and auto-populating their pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, Anne Garini here, and I'm really excited about our guest today. She is a co-founder and managing partner at Pair VC. She received her PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford for her breakthrough work in circuit design automation and has taught the analog circuit design course at Stanford for over a decade. She has made her mark as an entrepreneur by co-founding three companies, including Sabio Labs, which sold to Magna Design. She has received so many awards throughout her career, among them the T35 Young Innovative Award by MIT. She was on the Midas Brink list of top investors and the Woman in EDA Achievement Award. Mar Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Anne. I love Affinity. Oh, well, thank you so much, Mar. You and Pear have played an instrumental part of Affinity's story. So I want to start the conversation with how you came to America. You grew up in Barcelona. What was the driving force in coming to the U.S.? Wow, uh, you know, I actually came almost by accident. I had a, I was getting an engineering degree and in Madrid, and um, I had a some professor from MIT came and gave a lecture, and I was just so impressed. My, I was in a small school that didn't do research, and this professor came and gave a presentation about all the things that went on at MIT and you know, right at that moment, I was like, I am going to America. That's what I'm going to do. So, um, you know, it was a different time. I think it was easier to get visas, but I, I managed to get a J1 visa to work here in the, in the summer. And that's how I made it here. But, uh, you know, it's, it's actually a little serendipitous that I went to that talk and that I was so impressed. Yeah, that's, that's, that's incredible. And then you went on to, I know you had an internship before you started your PhD program, or yes. you had a couple of them, Apple and then Linear Tech. Yes. Um, I, I've heard you before tell the story. Linear Tech recently got bought for, I believe it was $15 billion. Yes. Um, Linear, Linear Tech is, a, is a, one of the best companies, secret companies, I guess. They, were, they build analog circuits, which are the critical components in any of our phones or, you know, any sort of consumer electronics that you may think of. And you got that internship in kind of a unique way. How did, how did that come about? Well, you know, I was at a party um, with uh, my husband, uh, uh, my husband's friend's party and the CTO of Linear Tech was talking about how he was interviewing people and asking them this question and nobody knew this question. And I was like, oh, I know the answer to that question. And I think he was completely shocked <laughs> that I actually knew the answer. So he gave me a job on the spot, um, which was great because uh, it allowed me to spend the summer in uh, California. So I thought that was a, a, a great outcome. Little did I know when I went to Linear, I was the first woman 
that they had hired in the circuit design team. I was the first woman in the lab. This was in 93. Um, so it was a complete shock to their system. They actually didn't know how to act around me <laughs> for a long time. It was really quiet for the first week. And then, you know, they went back to uh, cursing and, you know, being very loud. <laughs> And part of that too, I know that you've spoken about it before. There was there was a unique culture that was there that you kind of got brought into being the only female, just being a little bit different. Um, how did you adapt to that? You know, I had a really. I, it was a. It was a. You know, a learning in so many ways. It was almost you know my first real job, and I went to the super high performance company. Just to give you a sense, the sign that they had at the door. Um, had the name of the company and then it said home of the gurus and uh, <laughs> gurus meaning you know everybody worked there that was really really you know really smart and it's true it's a really hard discipline to design circuits so I was a little intimidated uh, when I came in uh, but I was very fortunate to meet um, this guy that had his lab bench next to mine his name is Jim Williams he's actually a very famous circuit designer in the computer museum has a lot of uh you know, a lot of his designs are there. And, um, you know, he took me under his wing. You, he first, you know, gave me a ride from Palo Alto to Milpitas. That's where the company was. I didn't have a car at the time and 237 was not a highway. So I used to take like two buses to get to work. But the first thing he did is gave me a ride, which, you know, uh, shortened my commute dramatically. And during those rides, you know, he educated me a lot into, you know, how to be, you know, how to talk to each individual team member <laughs> and what were their weak spots. And also, you know, how to do circuit design. He thought about it more as an art uh, than a science. And, you know, that had a huge impact on me, which was great. One, one of the things that he did, you know, that there was a prank culture at the company and I, I went in, um, you know, because I was taking the bus, but this guy, the, the guys put this big magnet in, um, in my backpack. It was small, but it was very, very heavy. So, you know, for, for a few days, I was like, my back really hurts. My back really hurts. <laughs> and, you know, anyways, I figured out the prank and Jim helped me get back to them. We wired a bunch of capacitors the opposite way. And when somebody turned on their circuit, it exploded on them. So that was a, a great way to get back at them. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because there's, you hear a lot, one of uh, the people that I really look up to, who's the CMO at IBM, talks a lot about, um, especially females joining companies and female leadership and inclusion, and how sometimes it is, it's almost more important to focus on the men that help the women yes. and elevate, as opposed to the naysayers that don't care about diversity or inclusion, more focus on the people that truly like want to help and like totally. lift you up and, and level it out. And there's always some of those people, you know, it's, uh, which is great. And they have had huge impact in my life in many ways, but yeah, those are great people. And, you know, the other thing that I think you learn in these internships uh, early on is that, you know, you go in being the lowest position possible, right? Anything that people don't want to do, you get to do. But if you, if you do that with the best attitude possible and you try your best, it's, um, you know, you move, you move up pretty quickly, which I thought it's a good lesson as well. Absolutely. So 
after linear tech or I don't know if it was Apple, then linear tech, cause you had a couple internships, yeah. but uh, you decided to go get your PhD in electrical engineering at yes. Stanford. Um, what, what, what did you think at that point was going to be your end result? You know, originally I went, um, I, well, first of all, it was, I, I, I will tell you the whole story, but my dad is a professor at, uh, in Barcelona. He teaches medicine and I was brought up in this very, very academic home where I used to go to my dad's lectures every once in a while. And in Spain, you know, they have these huge classes, very intimidating hundreds of students, similar to Berkeley. And, you know, uh, the professor looks, uh, you know, very important. So um, it was expected of me to go into academia and be a professor. So it was almost natural that I would go into graduate school. That's, uh, that's one. Um, you know, the second thing about landing at Stanford is that I didn't really quite understand how um, you know, good of a school it was. I was in Spain and I wasn't really aware. It was a long time ago. I think there's a lot of hype now on branding, but it wasn't the case then. And um, I just wanted to come to Stanford because I had a boyfriend in California and I was like, well, that's the closest school to where you live. So I'll come here. Um, but I learned very quickly uh, the first day I arrived that, oh my gosh, everybody here is really, really smart. And I am the dumbest person in this school and they totally made a mistake. So, um, you know, that was a big lesson <laughs> for me. Uh, and, you know, just getting over that, I felt it was like my whole Stanford career. And how did you get over that? How did you get to the point where it was like, okay, now I can focus now. This is, I feel well, it, it took a while, I would tell you, but I think, you know, I think the first day I was there, my, um, I went into a research uh, group uh, the guys at Linear Tech had hooked me up with uh, Greg Kovacs, who's a professor there, and he was doing MEMS, um, which are, you know, special type of circuit. And I went into the lab and the, the student presenting, who's now my, a good friend of mine, um, he, I was actually showing his chips and these chips would move uh, on, the, on the desk. And I, you know, I just, I went home and I just told my then boyfriend, I was like, okay, oh my gosh, we should return all the money. Uh, I really do not belong here. And, you know, my, uh, my husband now, Matt said, uh, well, listen, do you want to be the smartest person at a place? Or do you want to be the dumbest person? Because it's always better to play up. Right. And um, I actually that really stuck with me. And in many cases where I go and you suffer the, this imposter syndrome, I always think, okay, I'm playing up. It's an opportunity for me to get better. Uh, and it's helped me a lot along the way. So I think that's one of the things that I kept in mind while I was there. Yeah, I've heard you say a lot. Of, it's, uh, I was joking around prior when we were talking and uh, you use sports analogies almost as much as I do. And it, <laughs> it really did stick with me. It's like playing up in tennis. Like you want to play with someone who's a little better than you, or I know yes. we're both runners. You want to run alongside someone who's a little more either fit or just faster because that just constantly makes you better. And it's yeah. so applicable to the rest of our careers too. Yep. And even to, you know, I would say to founders and CEOs, right? I think the CEOs, you know, I invest in companies really early when I get a CEO really early that um, wants me to connect him with someone that knows a lot about something or wants to get a coach or I'm like, okay, these people want to go up there, play better, right? Yeah. So, which is great. So 
kind of the next part of your career, um, obviously after several years when you're defending your PhD at Stanford, why did you choose to become an entrepreneur next? Well, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a crazy time, 1999, and maybe most people were in the workforce then, but it was this crazy time where companies were started in January and they would go public in June. So it was crazy, uh, like a startup fever that I haven't seen again. Um, I was actually already had a professor position that I had accepted. So, uh, but a lot of people in my lab were like, Mahar, why don't you start a company? Why don't you start a company? And um, I think there was a lot of peer pressure also in, I, you know, in my family. You can always be a professor, but this, you know, your research is so great. You should go do a company. Um, and that's how I got into it. You know, at, at some spare of the moment after suffering, this was the, the decision that took me the longest in my life. Uh, you know, I went from defending my thesis in March to closing a term sheet in the, the next month and starting a company. So wow. it was crazy. Um, but you know, I, I don't regret it. In, in a way, you know, being a venture in venture is like being a professor. You have this people that come in, especially when the stage I invest, they may not know everything and you try to teach them as much as you can and you hope they become much better than any than you, than you and than anybody that's come through your door, right? So uh, I love that part of the job. Yeah, that's, that, I mean, I can only imagine having kind of your mindset and then being in a crazy period. Um, I mean, we've definitely felt some yes. other kind of bubbles and uh, uh, waxing and waning in the startup world. So, uh, and then you, the first company you founded was Barcelona Design. Correct? Yes. So what did they do and um, what was, what was kind of the overall plan when you started that? Yes. So Barcelona Design was based on my PhD thesis and we actually used um, during my thesis, what I did was use um, a new type of optimization software or algorithms to um, design circuits uh, and, you know, things that used to take maybe days to design, you could design them in minutes. So that was very impressive. And we were also the first, um, you know, software tool for a circuit design that was run on um, as a web application. And at the time, which was, you know, the year 2000, that felt really revolutionary, obviously not today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that company um, started in 99 and it was a very different time from today. Like today, if you start a company, anybody that comes to pair and wants to start a company, we want to make sure they can be CEOs and they can grow to be the best leaders they can. But this, um, in, in the 90s, this was not the case, right? People uh, brought in, if there was a technical founder, especially a PhD, um, it was expected that the company would get a CEO. Uh, that was just the norm. And only after Andreessen came on board, this kind of belief changed, right? Mm -hmm. So at the time I went in with really not any significant job experience. And uh, I was, we, we brought in a CEO and unfortunately, we, you know, we didn't work well together. I don't think it was his fault. I think it was partly my fault, but um, and those are hard transitions. So the company didn't work out and I had to leave, which was really, really sad. Uh, you know, probably uh, the worst time in my life because as a founder, you identify so much with your company. It's your life day in and day out. That's all you do. So um, 
that was hard, but it was great for learning. It was a great learning experience. Um, and that allowed me really to fuel the rest of my career. Yeah, I know you've you've mentioned it before. I've heard you talk about it's almost like you go through all the stages of grief with these yes. type of things. Cause <laughs> it feels like it's almost like a, a living thing that is. Yes, that is yes, passed. it is grief. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and with that, it's, you know, I, I love the fact that you hit on that point of like that you learn sometimes more from the failures than you totally. do from the easy successes. Yes, totally. And, it's um. It's actually one of the things that uh, also, I'm a generally a fairly optimistic person. So even when things fail or don't go right, I'm always like, okay, what did I learn? What did I learn so I can use it again, right? Uh, and I think having that mentality really helps in, in my job for sure. And I think everybody's job, but definitely if you're trying to start a company. Yeah, because you went on to, to start two more companies yeah. and have successful exits like, how do you get your head in that mindset where you don't dwell on the past, but you really like Let's go. shake it off and focus <laughs> on like how to move forward and how to make the most of, you know, the mistakes in the past? Yeah, you know, I really, really look forward always, you know, and uh, sometimes I will, you know, I used to have this mentality where, I don't know, maybe I, uh, I wasn't doing something right but I still had time to do something and I would be like, oh, it's okay. I already messed up. I'm not going to do it. And now I'm like, well, I still have an hour or two hours to get something done. So I'll do it. Right. So um, I think that's, uh, you know, it's made me much happier as a person to think that way, you know, and you have to be okay. And maybe it comes with age. I think when you're really young, it's easier to feel like a failure is the end of the world. But truthfully, it's not. <laughs> you get a couple of hits on the chin and you start to realize it's move okay. On. It's Just okay. move on. And I really, success is overcoming, you know, how do you overcome failures, right? Because there is no success that comes for free. And um, it's just, there, there's no, no way. I don't believe in the super success stories that, you know, you see on the press. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the roller coaster of, of yeah. entrepreneurship for sure. And, and I think you've probably been, I'm sure you've been in those situations. You have a bad quarter or somebody leaves, you don't miss a, you know, you miss an opportunity and um, it's all about, okay, what am I going to do right now? So a lot of it is, uh, you know, whenever there is a problem, I always try to figure out, okay, what is the problem? Who do I need to bring to get it, uh, to get a solution and what, you know, let's go implement it and know that maybe that doesn't work and we have to try again. Yeah, it's so, taking that step back and trying yes. to figure out how, how do I get like a calm space to That's right. um, figure out a solution to something that can feel yes. overwhelming at times. Um, so you went on to start two, uh, two companies, as I mentioned, and then you started Pair VC? Yes, I started Pair. <laughs> and so we've already talked to, to Pedro and uh, he obviously has just a fascinating story. And one of the things he mentioned was it took several years to convince you yes. to, to join him. <laughs> and I can imagine he is an incredibly convincing person. He's the so, best salesperson in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think it, I think when we were chatting with him, there were so many like sales tips of like, that's what the, I think that's what he should lead like a, a seminar on of how to sell. Yeah. Um, so what actually convinced you from your point of view, what, it, what finally, where did you crack? And you were like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a venture capital firm. Um, Hachman, 
is not only a great salesperson and a great marketing person, he's a very smart person. So he uh, approached me in 2009 and said, Mar, this is crazy idea. It's like, Mar, I want to rent this house and I want to put people in there to work on ideas. And then we're going to invest in them. I was like, what is he talking about? Like a communal home. I'm like, what is he talking about? So I was like, okay. Um, and he, he kept telling me about his house for a long, for four years. Um, he even took me once. He's like, hey, come see this uh, home I'm about to see. And he was really trying to pitch me to, to do this farm with him. But anyways, finally, he changed strategy. And in 2013, he said, Mar, I'm going to, why don't you start angel investing with me? Um, I'm looking at some companies. Why don't you come and see them with me? Let's go to Coupa uh, on Ramona Street in Palo Alto. So um, I started going there in January of 2013. We would, you know, I would go maybe, I don't know, a couple of times a week at the beginning and we would meet a founder together. And, uh, you know, five months into it, I, I was literally there with Peshman from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, in a little table, having breakfast, lunch, everything, and just meeting founder after founder there. So at some point I was like, okay, fine, you win. <laughs> I'm already doing it. <laughs> Which, uh, anyway, so that's how I, we eventually decided to start Pair. And uh, neither Peshman or I had any uh, venture background. So we had to go really from zero to raise a fund is actually a really hard process. It's not like raising a um, seed round or a series A where you can go online and type how to raise a seed round and there's a bunch of links, right? This is pretty secretive still. So I remember I decided, okay, well, I'll just buy a book and read about it. So, you know, <laughs> we went to Amazon and bought some book and anyways, um, that's how we got started. And I can tell you more about it, but it was definitely a tough process raising that fund. Um, looking back now, is there something that you would have changed in how you raised that first fund? Well, you know, I, I had a really, yes, many ways, you know, I think the best thing about doing anything is the first thing about doing something is to not do anything, just learn and talk to people, you know, don't start before you gather information. So I think gathering more information would have been great. Right. And we should have spent weeks doing that rather than doing throughout the process. <laughs> um, but, uh, but otherwise it was fine. It was good. And, and when was that, that you guys started pair that was 2000? 2013. So we started in 2013. Yes. And the philosophy or your thesis there is really like zero to one. So you're working with founders from the very beginning. Yes, sometimes um, minus one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we invest in companies that are uh, pre-product, pre-sales. Uh, many of them go through pivots. So they will literally change what they're doing, um, you know, which is the case for Affinity. Uh, you know, when I met Shubi and Ray, um, I met them in, I think, February of 2014. They sent us an email and said, hey, we've seen your website, Pair VC. We're building this tool for connecting students in India to students in the U.S. so they can learn how to go, get into college. Uh, can we work with you? <laughs> and I remember just meeting the two of them saying, oh, my gosh, these guys are great. I have no idea what they're working on. It's going to work, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we... So, that story happens all the time with us. 
Yeah, we've heard, uh, I've heard a couple of the stories of, because I, I know Pagemon ended up getting getting the mansion yeah. back and uh, uh, they were staying there at the in the early days. Yes, they did. <laughs> I, I hope there was like several cleaners because I have no idea. Sophomores <laughs> in college. Uh, so with that, like, what is, what is your main goal with PEAR? Uh, like, I know you work a lot on the college campuses. You're obviously still teaching. Um, and a lot of the entrepreneurs that you're getting are either grad students or um, undergrad still. Yes. Like, what, do you, what do you hope to get out of PEAR in five to 10 years? You know, I, I, this was very important to us, to both Pashman and I. I think we, we, we aspire, both of us, to build the best um, way to build a company from the zero to one stage, right? So if a founder is thinking of like, I'm starting a company, okay, I'm going to pair because they're going to be my best partners. At a, you know, more personal level, I'm a real, you know, I'm, I'm a, more of a people person and I, I really very attached to everybody that is one of our founders. And because I went through that experience at Barcelona where I didn't have a support, um, nobody that believed in me and that said, Mar, you could run this company. Um, that's what I wanna do with everybody that we back. I really wanna teach them and let them be the best they can be, uh, be a small part of that journey. So if, uh, you know, if in five years I've helped 50 more founders do that, that's going to be great, right? That's, that's how I measure my success. And obviously that will generate great companies and multiple jobs and so on. But, um, you know, fundamentally, I think growing these people is really what makes me happy. Yeah, and that's been such a fundamental, it's just been such a great change in venture capital where there's been more of a focus on like the operations and support and help, especially for early stage founders who, mm might be engineering students who have never, yes. you know, never read anything about whether it's marketing or sales or even design. And that, that support is so needed just to kind of get the lift off the yeah. ground. True. They, they, um, I mean, it's great because this people has, it's huge potential, right? Incredibly hardworking, ambitious, intelligent, and they just need access and a little guidance. And, you know, they are like sponges. They like, you know, they, they become amazing. It's incredible. Sometimes I see, uh, see Shubi and Ray and I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> so it's great. Well, you guys have been instrumental, uh, especially in the early days of Affinity. So uh, I think your model is, is definitely working. Um, just want to ask you a couple kind of quick fire questions. Yeah. Next. So first one, any favorite books that you recommend? especially entrepreneurs or VCs? Yeah, so I actually recommend a book um, to everybody. I've been recommending it for a decade plus. <laughs> it's called Four Steps to the Epiphany. It's written by Steve Blank, who, you know, he's the original uh, professor of the Lean Launchpad class that I teach at Stanford. But this book really changed my life as a founder. I'm an engineer as training. And it talks about, you know, how do you find that product market fit? And how do you not you know, um, overspend or raise a lot of money without truly knowing if somebody needs what you're building. So, um, and it's written for engineers. So it has diagrams and step one, two, three, four. Uh, so I feel like it's, it, it speaks to that audience and, you know, I highly recommend it. That's definitely why I've never read it. Well, that, <laughs> I, 
I'm sure there's a lot of people on our team that that definitely will. An old book. I feel like it's uh, it needs more marketing, and it would do really well. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so I know as well you have one daughter and two sons, correct? Yes. Yes, getting that right. Uh, how have have they changed at all? Like having kids, how you think about investing or what you think about investing in? Completely. Yes. Uh, you know, it's so interesting because this gener, you know, my kids, I've seen them grow with technology, obviously since the day they're born, right? Um, and I have an 18-year-old and I have an 11-year-old. And even between those two, the difference is striking, right? Um, and it's surprising, but in, a, in technology, five years is like a century. So, um, you know, if you, for anybody that has children, they know that they are so savvy. You know, you can, they, my daughter will go and she wants to learn something. She just goes to YouTube, how to do this or that. Or, you know, my, my parents cannot believe that they can, you know, use pictograph to do some, uh, you know, some cool graphics and so on. So, but that's how they're born, you know, and how they're educated. Uh, so they have a totally different perspective about everything. And, you know, they're super native. They call me boomer, which I'm not quite sure is correct, <laughs> but they think it's really funny. Um, but I, I can go to them with any sort of consumer question, which is, which they immediately will tell me whether it uh, makes any sense or not sense. You know, I have one of my children uh, is a micro influencer for, you know, doing car videos on YouTube. So it's almost like a window into that whole passion economy that it's oh, so wow. hard to understand if you're not on the other side. Um, so yeah, for a lot of the, for a lot of the consumer side, they are like my test vehicle. You know, I think when I, when I'm doing like deep, uh, tech or B2B, they're not the right audience, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, anyways, they're still useful. I would say if you're in venture for sure. Yeah. Consumer and, and Gen Z is, I've, I've given a couple presentations on it, trying to like decode what it, what's going on in their head. And I think the the real conclusion that I came to is the bar is just going to be raised higher and higher. And higher, yes. The, the expectation is so high. There's no patience. Um, yeah, it, it, everything is different. Most were born with an iPhone. Like, you know, that wow factor has to be exponential for, for everything. <laughs> um, so next question for you. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of people along the way that have kind of helped you through your career, Jim Williams and... Um, you know, some of your team at, at Stanford as well. Are there any other mentors that really stuck out for you as, you know, helping you get over those life bumps along the way? Yeah, well, you know, other than my partner, Pejman, I think, you know, he's my partner, but obviously in many ways, mentor. And, um, you know, I, I definitely have grown a lot working with him. Um, he I think we complement each other in many ways. I think he learns from me. I learn from him. So that's a really good relationship. Uh, both Pejman and I had the fortune to have a great mentor when we were starting our fund. Her name is Catherine Gold. She actually sadly passed away of cancer uh, three years ago. But um, she was an amazing person, one of the first venture capitalists in the Valley. She started Foundation Capital. And this was, you know many years ago in the early 90s. So um, when it was even 
in our industry, which is really, really not diverse. It was even less diverse then. So Catherine really, um, you know, was a people person. She, her superpower was um, being able to put teams together in companies who would invest in a founder and know how to build a team around them. So he, she was a great, um, she was great at people choosing, I would say. So um, she, you know, helped, she saw something in Passion and I and really helped us get our act together and, you know, not only raise our fund, but also help us run our fund when we started. And sadly, there's many days I'm still, what would Catherine say? What would Catherine do in this moment? Uh, but I feel lucky that we, you know, that we met her. Yeah, not not only just a phenomenal investor, but also when you think back, a woman at that time yes. investing was so rare. Super rare. Yeah, she, she <laughs> was like a, a pioneer and yeah. she had that, you know, directness to her, which is, I find so effective, you know, uh, she was just, uh, uh, she would tell you as it is, uh, you know, and I think if you want to move fast, you really need that clear communication, even if it's, it feels harsh at some points. So yeah. I really appreciated that from her. That direct punch is pretty much the, the, the best way to break through the ceiling sometimes. So yes. <laughs> yeah, she, she is a phenomenal woman, everything I've, I've heard about her. Um, so final question for you. Uh, is there anything or what is the one thing that you would change about venture capital? Wow. Well, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things about venture capital where many of us are trying to change is that it's diverse, lack of diversity and inclusion. You know, I think a lot of, um, you know, there's very few women in positions of power where they are really decision makers in funds. There may be women in venture, but they're not the ones that are controlling the, the money that gets invested, right? So I think changing that is really important. Similarly, there are groups that are really underrepresented, Black founders, Black VCs, Latinx. I mean, there's just not that many, right? Um, and, you know, I, there's, I, I'm one of the uh, people that started All Raise, which is a group that is trying to increase uh, the female participation in, in venture. Um, and I also started with two other women, Kate, uh, Katie Ray and Trevor Salo, a conference called Equity Summit to put more money in the hands of female venture capitalists. So we connect them with um, the LPs, which are the foundations, uh, endowments, et cetera, so that they, these women actually get the money to invest. So I think there's a big movement around it and it's slowly changing. Uh, the problem is we're starting at women controlling 2% of the capital. So in order to get to 50%, <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of work ahead of us, you know. Uh, so th that's one thing, um, you know, there's obviously other things, but that, I think that's, if we did that, I think we would invest in better companies. Yeah, it's the diversity of minds when it comes to who's uh, handing out capital is such an important factor if we yeah. want to, you know, we, we end up focusing too much on apps that help us get cars as opposed to fixing some of these real problems that don't get any attention. Yeah, um, totally. Enough. Not not just handing the money, but also, I think, helping build a company. It's, you know, I'm in many board meetings where I'm the only woman. Um, and it's, you know, whether, whatever it, it is, even if we went to the same school, we just have different experiences as human beings. So 
I think it, it, it's a different perspective that you bring when you're making a difficult decision. So it's important. For, I think it's really valuable for the company. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think from a, a venture firm, you know, we talked to, or I had a conversation with Kimmy Scotty over at 8BC and she had uh, started the company Monthly Gift and it's about tampons, super taboo subject for most yeah. people. But sometimes you need those, you need people who understand, whoa, that's a real problem. Like that's right. that is something that may not sound interesting to a lot of people, but uh, when you have that emotional experience because your background is diverse, it really does shock you. Like that, that could be something big. Totally. So, yeah. Uh, although I think the most, uh, you know, uh, extreme pitch that we've gotten is a breast pump. And I think that was probably really hard for the founder <laughs> to explain. Uh, it. Maybe uh, only if it's demoed, but. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Yeah. And, and again, it's, Things that need innovation that maybe exactly. most people aren't thinking about on a regular basis. That's right. Well, Mar, thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to connect with Mar, please follow her on LinkedIn, or you could reach out to her at mar at pair.vc. She is truly one of the industry's best. That does it for another episode of Capital Connections. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tap the subscribe button and give us a rating. This podcast was produced by Affinity's Senior Growth Manager, Faison Mehdi. Music was produced by Affinity's Engineering Manager, Rohan Sahai. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to decision makers and auto-populating pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co or email us at marketing at affinity.co. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.